shall teach children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, the houses full of good things that you did not fill, the cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And now from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 31. Christ, the wisdom and power of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're studying the gospel according to Matthew, and we have been for the past couple of weeks looking at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, trying to understand what was going on there and, and what it means for us. Uh, 
I also, because I've sometimes asked about the earlier passages, the ones that Tom read, I pick those. Those aren't random, and they are usually uh, or often quoted in the text we're reading. So Tom read the Deuteronomy 6 passage that Jesus will quote in the particular temptation we're looking at this morning. And of course, as we will see, the, uh, the cross was right at the center of the temptation. And it has always been thus that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So when you hear these earlier texts, realize that they are thematically winding in to the text that's being preached. We're looking, as I said, at Matthew chapter four, and particularly at the final temptation, which begins in verse eight of chapter four, and we'll read down to verse 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The gospel of Christ, thanks be to God. It's interesting to me, just uh, sort of the, the spatial geography of this. Um, as when, when Satan begins the temptation, they're, they're on the ground in the desert. The second temptation, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, higher. For the final temptation, he takes him up to the top of a mountain. Sometimes in order to bring us down, the enemy just keeps taking us higher. Just as often the Lord, in order to lift us up, takes us down and humbles us. If you are in a place right now where you think, how could I be here if I'm a child of God? That's often exactly the place where the Lord takes us in order that he might then lift us up and exalt us. Uh, just a quick review as we come to this final temptation for any of you who've not been here or any of you who have memories like mine. And you may think, oh, you've got a great memory. Sometimes uh, my wife used to say to me, how is it that you can remember an entire sermon and you can never remember the three things I asked you to pick up from the store? <laughs> so it's selective and yours may be too. Um, so we began this study of chapter four coming right out of the exalted events at the end of chapter three. Jesus had gone with the people, identifying with the people of Israel as they went to John the Baptist in order to be baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were open, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and the voice of the Father from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And as we've noted, we might think that after an experience like that, Jesus would just walk away on air, never face temptation again the first warning of the context of this text is that there is no spiritual experience that we can have that is so exalted that it puts us beyond the reach of temptation. The spirit who has just been poured out on Jesus does what? 
as his very first act. We open chapter 4 and it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. God does not test us, but God will lead us into a place of temptation in order that in that place we may become strong in him and learn to do battle with the enemy. So that was the first warning. The second was like unto it, and it's simply that some of us think, if I could just get away from the family or from the school or from these friends for a little bit and go off to a deserted place, I could get away from all of this temptation. No, the problem is you take yourself with you. And so wherever we go, there's no place so distant that that you can go to avoid temptation because your own Babylonian heart has traveled with you. Plus, the enemy can find you there. But the good news is, number one, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit find you there, and they are stronger and more mighty than the defeated foe who comes after us. Also, always be encouraged when you're in the the worst moments of temptation. If you're like me, when I'm strongly tempted, my first inclination is to feel like, ah, I thought I was, I thought I'd gotten past this. I thought I was more mature. No, temptation is not a sin. It it is simply the human condition, this side of glory. We are all temptable. Our Lord Jesus was tempted, the author of Hebrews says, in all ways as we are, yet in his case, without sinning. So being tempted, even strongly tempted, to things that you might not even want other people to know that you were tempted to, is not sin. It's not grievous to the Lord. It doesn't separate you from him. He wants you in those times to run to him, to let that be the school where you learn to stand in his power and in his strength and realize that the enemy who seems so fierce is a defeated foe. Okay. First temptation, as we saw, came to Jesus at his point of greatest weakness. He'd been fasting for 40 days. He was hungry, and God had said to him at the baptism, this is my beloved son. So the enemy comes and says, hmm, if you are God's son, if that was true, if you weren't just hallucinating, if you're, or if God just wasn't playing with you, if you're God's son, He doesn't want you to starve out here. Why would God who loves you want you to be miserable? If he loves you, if he's pleased with you, he wants you fulfilled, he wants you contented. He doesn't want you out here hungry. So use your powers to feed yourself. Turn these stones to bread. And it comes to Jesus at that point of hunger and weakness. But Jesus responds by quoting from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Satan, being the judo expert that he is, now Jesus is pulling that way, says, okay, I can quote scripture too. Let's see if we can knock you in the ditch on the other side. And so he now comes at Jesus, as we saw last week, at his point of greatest strength. He is wanting to uphold God's crown rights. He wants to walk in obedience to God's word. And so Satan says, I can quote scripture, I know scripture. Have you considered Psalm 91? And he takes him to the height of the temple there, whether in a vision or in, we don't know, but we just know that suddenly Jesus is there with the tempter at the pinnacle of the temple, looking 
down at the people coming to worship, and the enemy says, throw yourself down. Prove that you're God's son. If you're the son of God, God has said that he'll not let you dash your foot against a stone. He'll send his angels to catch you up in their arms. He will protect you. Put that word to the proof and show that you're God's son and that his word is true. And Jesus teaches us what to do with the presumption of claiming scriptures out of context. Scripture interprets scripture. Jesus answers with a scripture. And by the way, as we said last week, that was a promise to people who were fighting the Lord's battles. It wasn't to people who chose to make some great display. And we looked last week at the temptations we have in our lives to presume upon God's promises, to take things out of context and say, you know, well, if God said this, then if God says that he's going to heal me, I don't need to go on chemotherapy. I'll just claim the promises of God, and God, if you love me, you'll... I mean, people do that, but every day, unless you're a whole lot better than I am, I'll just say for myself, every day I am tempted to presumption every time I want to just let loose with my mouth or tell a story that I know probably shouldn't tell or whatever. This temptation to sin, knowing that I'm saved by grace, not by works, and I can always go to God tonight and ask him to forgive me, that's the very presumption of throwing your, throw yourself down, he'll catch me, he'll hold me up. So we spoke last week against presumption, and Jesus simply answered, again, by going to Deuteronomy 6 a little bit further on. And, and he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test the Lord. Obey him. So we come to this temptation. This is the most dangerous of all. And it's the most dangerous of all because it strikes at the heart of three things that Jesus that strike right at the heart of his mission, why he has come. The first is it strikes at his passion for the mission of redemption and salvation. Secondly, it strikes at his own horror at the means of salvation, the cross, the way he's going to have to redeem us. And it strikes at his compassion for all of those of us who will follow and be his. How does it do that? Think about what Satan is doing. Satan is saying, in effect, I know that you came to destroy my works, to destroy the works of the devil, and to destroy my kingdom. You've come to claim the kingdom for God. I know that. You don't have to go to the cross. The people who believe in you don't ever have to suffer. None of that has to happen. I am the prince of the power of the air, but I am willing to surrender and give you all of this. All it will cost you is continuing. After all, you've humbled yourself. You've taken the form of a servant. You're willing to become obedient unto death. You don't have to. If you will simply bow the knee to me, I will give it. I will lead the congregation in singing, Jesus shall reign where the sun doth his celestial courses run, if you will just bow once before me and worship me. 
And what he's doing is striking at Jesus' passion to come and take down the usurper and get him out. And he's saying, okay, you can have it all. All you have to do is bow down one time and worship me. And then there doesn't have to be a cross. You don't have to bear sin. You don't have to do any of that. And your people down through the ages will not have to suffer because they're yours. But of course, the purpose is to stop the means of salvation in order that he might stop the ends of salvation. Because apart from the cross, you and I cannot ever be reconciled to God. Satan was offering what wasn't his to give. He was promising something that he could not ever give. He's a pretender to the throne. He cannot ever give you and me the things that he tempts us to believe will bring fulfillment to our lives. There's only one who can. And he can do it because he joined himself to us, became one with us. And so you see the concrete nature of this. Jesus in his weakness, he's still, he hasn't eaten, he's exhausted, and he's being told, and this would continue to be the temptation. What's, what's the purpose? It's to try to get rid of the cross. Because if you can get rid of the cross, you get rid of salvation altogether. Jesus will face this over again in his ministry. You think a few chapters on in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 16, Jesus at Caesarea Philippi will turn to his disciples and say, who do people say that I am? And they'll say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I know you. I know you, Simon. You didn't come up with this on your own. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And from now on, you're no longer going to be Simon. You're going to be Peter, the little rock, because on the rock of this profession that you've made, that I am Lord, on that rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what, I love to tease my, my apologies to any Catholic friends, but I have some very precious ones, one in Knoxville, who's the priest of the cathedral there, the rector of the cathedral. And I did talk to him. He was talking about Petron, that, you know, this is the text for, for Peter being the rock and on which Christ built, it, built his church. And I said, well, what was his first statement after this? He went to Jesus when Jesus began to teach them that there was a cross to be born, that he was going to Jerusalem to die, the first thing Peter said was, no, it doesn't have to be that way. There doesn't have to be a cross. And Jesus now turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan, for now you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. It was always the temptation somehow to find another way to the cross, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, is he prayed in agony of soul, knowing that he was the next morning to be crucified. He said, Father, if it be possible, 
let this cup pass from me. It was always there. This was the greatest temptation to Jesus. And I'm sure you've read them. The American Medical Association in their journal uh, used to annually, I doubt they do it anymore, but they used to annually around Easter print this uh, really gruesome but medically accurate depiction of what happened to a person in crucifixion. And it's horrifying. But that wasn't the horror to Jesus. There were many who faced crucifixion with courage. What he recoiled from was that he who knew no sin was going to become the sin bearer for all of us who are his. Not in the abstract, but in concrete guilt and shame for every act of violence and injustice and hatred, for every rapist later saved, for every monstrous racist, for every, I mean, murderer. The guilt and shame of every one of us was placed on him. The agony of that, I remember as a little child, I was a little, gosh, I was not a good little kid. But, so when I was young, I mean, I was a little sinner. Little viper in covenant diapers, thank God, you know. (laughs) That's what baptism is, it puts on the covenant diapers. Um, But I was that little viper in covenant diapers. But I remember nights when I was little when I had just disobeyed my parents and I couldn't sleep. I felt so guilty and I'd go in and wake them up and say, forgive me, you told me not to do this, I did or I did. And they would talk to me and then get out, all of us on our knees and pray and I then could go back and go to sleep. That was a little viper worried about some innocuous little thing. Imagine being the perfect one, the one who from eternity is holy, 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 who is perfect love and perfect perfect righteousness in that awful moment, what Martin Lloyd-Jones used to call the divine juggling of the books where all of his righteousness is put on me and all of my sin and shame is put on him. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become God's righteousness. That was the cup. And he said the night before, the cup that the Father gives me to drink, shall I not drink it? What was that cup? It was the cup of the Father's wrath that in the book of Revelation is poured out on those who will not receive his grace. And it's destruction. It is doom. It is judgment. And Christ drank that cup for you and for me. And the enemy here is saying, You never have to do that. I will give it to you. You don't have to become sin. I know who you are. And I know you don't want that. What does it mean to us? We're not sinless. We're not going to become sin bearers. What does it mean? Jesus, in that Matthew 16, when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem and my enemies are going to crucify me. And Peter said, no, it doesn't have to be that way. And he said, get behind me, Satan. What's the next thing he said? If anyone would come after me, 
If anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the cross, there was a fellow in England, well-meaning, I'm sure, but he used to make a big deal out of having a cross that he carried through the land, up one hill, down the next. This was supposed to be his testimony. He was taking up his cross and followed. That's not what the cross is. Jesus didn't go lugging a cross through Judea and Galilee. The cross is the place where you die. It is death. It is the end so that you can have a new life. We wear little crosses. I think I've talked to you about this before. And I've heard uh, lovely Christian women at dinner parties go, what a beautiful little cross. I love that. Ooh, where'd you get that? Are those real diamonds? I'd love one like that. And I, you know, confess I've got a big Celtic cross tattooed on my, well, I don't have the massive bicep. It's, it's a good size one. I got, it. I got it when I was younger. But I have a Celtic cross tattoo. I'm but when we make it an object of beauty, imagine if Jesus, I've said this to you before, I'm sure, but imagine if he'd been killed in an electric chair. What a beautiful little electric chair. Where did you get that? Are those real diamonds? I, I want to have an electric chair like that. Because we don't crucify now, we forget what it is. And what Jesus said is, if you would be mine, you must. He didn't say if you want to be a more serious Christian, if you want to be a super disciple, if anyone, any man, any woman, any child, any old person, anyone would be mine. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. You take up the cross in order to die to all that is against God so that he can give you the life that the enemy cannot give you. In the end, what you get is what you always wanted, but you were looking for in all the wrong places. And so Jesus just turns to him and says what we need to learn to say in every situation. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's it. That's the whole counsel of God. Worship him. I don't know anybody in our culture who has been better at talking about the idols of our hearts than Tim Keller of Redeemer New York. And Tim is constantly hitting that theme. Calvin, John Calvin, the great father of of the Reformed faith, used to, in in his institutes, he said, our hearts are idol-making factories. So, We deal today with our stuff. We wake up in the morning and, oh my goodness, there it is again, or I've created some new stuff. And that's why every day we need again to find that place to die. I've told you, I'm sure, I, I had said to the congregation I served so long, I have to wake up every day and say, John Wood must die. And one of our staff guys at staff meeting said, that was so helpful. I woke up this morning and said, John Wood must die. <laughs> no, no, I'd appreciate it if you would put your own name in that, in that place, please. 
but you, you get it. That's the end of the temptation. At that point, Satan flees because there's nothing else to say once you say that. We worship not just when we're here. We worship in everything. What do you think you can't live without? What relationship? If you lost that relationship would take all the meaning out of your life. You've taken that good thing and made it an idol. And idols are only fit for destruction. What job could you not ever let go of or, or your life would no longer have meaning? You've let that become an idol only. Only God is God. And he made us for himself. And we only will ever find our joy and our peace and our right appreciation of all of his good gifts, the gift of this life. This is not a call to asceticism. It is a call to the rich fullness of life in him. Because at the end of the day, some of us have, I don't, but I will, I'm sure, some of us have stints. And we think that, oh, you know, I've got some problems, so God probably needs to put another gospel stint in my heart. No, no. That's not what he does. God does heart transplants. He wants to take out your old one and give you a new one. And then you maintain that through the means of grace as we face the enemy day by day. And remember, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. John, don't put God to the test. Don't do it. Don't say it. Don't go there. Don't throw yourself down and presume upon his grace. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Would you stand? Father, thank you that our Lord Jesus was willing to go 